Thanks very much, uh, Gerd, and thanks, Steve, for inviting me, and, and thanks, uh, everyone, for coming along. Um, essentially, in this talk, um, what I want to argue is that we can't really understand climate change, either in the UK um, or anywhere in the Caribbean or, or globally, um, without considering the social relations um, of contemporary forms of capitalism. What that means is that we must also consider um, the histories of imperialism and colonialism that have shaped uh, global development pathways. Yet, as I'll argue in practice, um, most discussions of climate change reduce it to a technical problem to be solved by either better science, uh, engineering, or economics. In other words, there's a general neglect of the social relations of climate change. And a problem with this is that beyond being unethical, um, such a neglect and the responses that are, are then entailed by that framing um, will fail in their own terms to deal with the climate change problem. And that's partly what we're seeing with the, the lack of adequate action on climate change is because climate change has been constructed, framed as this kind of technical scientific issue with a neglect of the social and political relations underpinning it. So, as you know, um, my primary kind of ethical and political concern is with the Caribbean region. Um, the region which is home to some of the most vulnerable uh, countries, uh, countries most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change uh, on the planet. Um, and this vulnerability, although it has geophysical dimensions, is also largely uh, structured by social relations, uh, both historical and present. And another thing that I'm going to suggest is that the contemporary relations of climate change are imperialist in character. In terms of offering some kind of hope or some kind of uh, move towards where we might look for achieving a more ethical, more sociologically sensitive uh, account of climate change, I'm going to point towards um, the climate justice movement and to notions of climate justice that attempt to broaden climate change out from this, socio from this uh, sort of technocratic policy issue into a, one of, kind of social and political relations. So in terms of the structure of the talk, I'm going to start by outlining what the context is, so why I think we should be concerned about climate change in the Caribbean, if, if that's not already something that people are aware of, um, and then moving on to look at the, the ways in which climate change is framed as a kind of a, a scientific issue, and that part of that scientific framing in, in and around the Caribbean has been an attention to this target of 1.5 degrees Celsius as the acceptable limit to uh, climate change or global warming globally. I'm then going to move on to look at this imperialist or colonial character that manifests itself through the relations of the United Nations via the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, as well as through the forms of funding that are offered um, in terms of it, for countries who are vulnerable to climate change to help them respond. Um, and at that point, I will point towards um, what I hope is a more progressive framing and account of climate change that takes into account issues of justice and ethics. So when climate change is typically discussed, uh, it's often reduced to a technical problem to be solved by better science, engineering or economics. So when we talk about climate change, we typically think about uh, degrees Celsius of temperature change. Um, Amount, uh, tons of carbon emitted into the atmosphere or geophysical uh, changes associated with melting glaciers or changes in weather patterns. 
Um, these processes are often discussed and expressed in terms of parts per million or greenhouse gases um, or degrees Celsius. Um, and it's hard to talk about climate change without making reference to this kind of underlying uh, scientific uh, understanding of, of, of the phenomenon. However, part of why we're in the mess with climate change that we are is because often the, limit, the discussion is limited to uh, a discussion of these characteristics. So the kind of social and political relations uh, that underpin climate change uh, never feature in, in dominant discussion. Pausing on that for a moment and just kind of taking the, so the scientific framing uh, for granted, what are we likely to see as climate change unfolds in the Caribbean? Um, well, <coughs> increasingly apocalyptic futures for the region can be inferred from uh, increasingly catastrophic presence. Because most Caribbean countries are small island nations with considerable amount of development along the coastlines, they're very vulnerable to sea level rises, to flooding and inundation from the encroachment of the sea on, on coastal development. Um, they're also vulnerable to more intense and more frequent hurricanes, um, droughts and desertification, other forms of extreme weather um, that are likely to accompany, that are already accompanying climate change. Climate change brings with it more intense storms. It brings with it um, uh, with more intense storms, which are likely to have disruptive impacts on both the commercial and subsistence agriculture um, in large parts of the Caribbean. And these are, parts, these, are re these are areas that are already significantly vulnerable in terms of food security or sovereignty already. Um, in terms of health, there are increased risks of vector-borne diseases such as malaria, Zika uh, and dengue. And all of these geophysical changes or, or, uh, are compounded by the fact that Caribbean economies are reliant on various sectors that are themselves vulnerable to climate change, notably tourism, agriculture and fishing. Um, we know that the Caribbean is, is currently experiencing, uh, a, or globally the oceans are experiencing a mass coral bleaching event, which means the die-off of, of coral reefs, um, which itself threatens the kind of uh, uh, fisheries and, and, and the economies and, and uh, forms of livelihood that are dependent, dependent on uh, coral reefs and the forms of life associated with them. It should also be noted that some of the vulnerability that these countries have stems from the fact that historically um, they have been uh, among the most indebted in the world and they have been subject to the expropriation of their wealth uh, by colonizers and by imperial powers. All of this leads uh, local commentators in the region to acknowledge climate change as an existential threat. So um, Omar Figuera uh, suggested that as a Caribbean community we have declared our recognition that climate change represents an urgent and potentially irreversible threat to our societies. So climate change in the Caribbean means a threat to the very existence of Caribbean societies there as they are currently formed. Leading on from that, Caribbean countries joined uh, an association of small island states which, was, which included uh, over, over half of the world's 41 small island developing states, in calling for an upper limit to global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius to stay alive. So this phrase, 1.5 to stay alive, was coined as both a policy target and a campaigning mechanism around which 
vulnerable countries uh, could try and pressure the, the leading kind of politicians and political nego negotiators um, to take stronger action on climate change than was currently being discussed. So what happened to this 1.5 degree target? Or rather, what are the implications of this 1.5 degree target? Well, we know that even at 1.5 degrees, um, the Caribbean is likely to experience significant impacts of climate change. Um, they're already seeing more intense and more frequent hurricanes. Um, the sea level is already rising, and we haven't even reached 1.5 degrees yet. And in practice, the, uh, the degree of warming that we're kind of locked into as a global society is approaching at least uh, 2.8 degrees C, or upwards of four or five degrees C um, if you take the more pessimistic uh, predictions into account. So what this means is that although countries have indeed committed to uh, taking steps to try and limit warming to 1.5 degrees C as Caribbean and other small island state nations have asked for, um, in practice that commitment doesn't mean much given the fact that their own kind of uh, their own the actions that the countries have committed to um, themselves are, would only would see warming limited only to 2.8 degrees C. So, even by uh, countries' own kind of uh, uh, agreed targets, we're likely to vastly exceed the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, of warming that spells catastrophe for the region. James Hansen, more recently, the climate scientist, has suggested that. The kinds of uh, impacts that will be heralded um, by, a degree, uh, by excessive warming are much worse than has already been anticipated. So one of the features of climate change science is that it's a science that has to be uh, developed or that has been developed by consensus. And the feature of this consensus making process is that scientists have tended to err on the side of caution in order to um, uh, uh, get some kind of agreement passed uh, through for example, the International Panel on Climate Change, which is the, the, the international scientific body. What that means then is that some of the more uh, pessimistic or arguably, according to scholars like James Hansen, realistic forms of uh, predictions as to what's likely to take place are excluded from this consensus. So um, the climate science that, that kind of exists in the dominant policymaking uh, arenas is perhaps much more pessimistic uh, than, than, sorry, much more optimistic than it should be. Hence, there's the likelihood of millions of climate change refugees emerging from the Caribbean region, uh, something which doesn't bode particularly well given the kind of recent response to uh, migration and migrants in countries such as the US or um, here in Europe. Nevertheless, um, there was a mixed response by Caribbean countries to the fact that at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change talks, the kind of big multilateral uh, UN negotiating process, um, talks that take place every year. At the talks in, in 2015 in Paris, countries did make this commitment to trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C, which led some in the Caribbean to be optimistic and to suggest that it was, it was uh, expedient of them to have pursued this, this this kind of slogan and target of 1.5 to stay alive. Others, however, were less, uh, less sure as to how, uh, how, how, much, how much of a cause for celebration um, 
this agreement was. And I'll speak a bit more about that in due course because there's a lot to suggest that the, that the 1.5 degree target, aside from not being taken seriously by countries' own commitments, um, is, is itself highly problematic. Um, some of that is suggested by the fact that um, the latest climate science and the latest kind of reports in terms of the state of uh, uh, um, geophysical changes that are taking place suggest that we are already um, facing catastrophic uh, impacts. So scientists are warning about the kind of uh, level of carbon dioxide and its concentration in the atmosphere is already being too high to be able to limit warming to anything below two degrees. Um, and that we're already kind of triggering mechanisms and forms of, of uh, geological process and, and, and geophysical process that are likely to uh, lead climate change to take on its, its own kind of runaway character um, and, and kind of uh, create what are called feedback loops, which will then make it impossible for humans to intervene um, in the process of, of global warming. So I would suggest that all of this uh, this lack of action and, and the kind of threat that climate change faces, or lack of action rather in, in the face of the threat that climate change faces, rests upon um, the fact that we have failed to understand climate change as being a process which is significantly socially structured. Just a little bit about the kind of unfolding, um, increasingly uh, uh, problematic degree of warming that we're, we're seeing in the world so every every month almost every month in in 2015 and then again every month in 2016 broke some kind of temperature record um, and 2016 looks likely to break a temperature record uh, as well now this framing of climate change in terms of um, greenhouse gases or degrees Celsius of temperature change whilst necessary to some extent for helping to make climate change an issue of social and political concern, also arguably leads to a limitation of uh, the, the kind of discussion that it's possible to have about climate change. So Eric Swinadau has suggested that we're seeing a, a, what he calls a post-political form of governance associated with climate change. That is that climate change is uh, only discussed within the realms of existing forms of social and political organisation. Um, so he goes on to say that climate change uh, is underpinned by, or discussions of cl around climate change are underpinned by um, a kind of uh, assumption that capitalism is inevitable as a form of social organisation, that only market-based responses are likely to, are, 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 are possible as, as responses to climate change, um, and that there's no alternative to these existing uh, socio-political arrangements. Um, more recently, um, writers have pointed out that, that climate change is also ahistorical, um, and that is because it doesn't take into account the kind of legacies, the structuring legacies of both, both colonialism uh, and imperialism, and the ways in which empire has shaped countries' capacities to respond, but also the countries who are culpable for the re releasing of uh, carbon emissions into the atmosphere, which themselves uh, cause climate change. Another way to pay attention to the relationship between empire and climate change is to examine in a bit more detail how the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change functions. 
And there have been a series of, of global talks, these, these global political uh, climate change talks, um, since 1992, um, when the Conference of Parties was founded and when climate change um, reached the, the significance of having its own kind of United Nations uh, uh, convention. Um, in, in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was signed, which um, was the kind of first attempt uh, to, for countries to try and limit warming to what was seen as an acceptable level, although arguably the commitments that were made at Kyoto by countries there were nowhere near as stringent and, 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 and strong as they needed to be uh, in, order to in order to actually uh, limit climate change. Kyoto expired in 2012. And, and there was quite a lot of hype around the Copenhagen climate change talks, which took place in 2009, because of the fact that Kyoto was due to expire. Um, and there was a big expectation that if agreement wasn't reached uh, in, in Copenhagen, then there would be no, essentially there would be no convention governing um, climate change at a global <coughs> level. Um, in practice, um, the Copenhagen talks were a bit of a disaster. Um, there was no consensus. Um, in fact, the talks, the, the deal that emerged from, uh, from Copenhagen at the COP15 uh, in, in 2009 was so bad that it led Lumuba Diaping, who was representing the group, uh, group of 77 nations and China bloc, negotiating bloc, um, described the agreement under discussion as being like asking Africa to sign a suicide pact, an incineration pact, in order to maintain the economic dependence of a few countries. And he compared the solution uh, to that based on uh, to, to the, that which funneled six million people in, in Europe into furnaces. And, and part of what he was highlighting and drawing attention to and despairing at was the fact that even though at Copenhagen countries agreed to a two-degree centigrade limit globally of warming, what that would mean for certain African countries would be a, a, a 3.5 degree um, uh, level of, of global warming. So even if, if globally temperatures were stabilized at two, two degrees, um, for certain parts of Africa that could lead to runaway warming of 3.5 degrees. And as I kind of indicated earlier, for the Caribbean, um, that already spells kind of uh, apocalyptic disaster. Such was the level of discontent within the uh, climate change negotiations in Copenhagen um, at the, the, off of the deal that was on the table, um, was that there was no uh, formal consensus by, by countries and, and parties who were uh, party to the negotiations. Nevertheless, that didn't stop the United States from trying to push through a deal anyway um, through backroom talks and uh, kind of unilateral negotiations. The U.S. managed to kind of strong-arm uh, certain countries and, and the, the, um, the richer countries or the, the kind of um, the G, G7, G8 plus the basic countries, China, India, South Africa and Brazil, all kind of got together and formed an agreement which wasn't legally binding, so it wasn't a kind of a valid successor to the Kyoto Protocol that I mentioned before. And they still managed to trumpet it as, as being a kind of success of the negotiations. So what you see is kind of an imperial power play whereby um, the, the dominant countries uh, kind of ignored the protocols of, of the convention um, and managed to push through their own kind of agenda and their own um, uh, 
kind of policy targets which were voluntary, so they didn't want countries to have to sign up to committing to, to uh, emissions targets. They wanted it to be a voluntary commitment. Um, they relied on market mechanisms, so kind of maintaining the status quo forms of social and political organization. Um, and they didn't offer any kind of tangible commitment to uh, paying reparations for climate debt uh, or indeed much in the way of uh, financial support to the extent that it's needed for countries who are going to bear the brunt of the impacts of climate change and who don't have the resources uh, to deal with it. <coughs> Having made the deal, the next problem that was faced by those imperial powers who wanted to push it through was the question of um, how to, how to uh, manoeuvre those countries who'd refused to sign up to it, because there were a number of countries who dissented from the consensus process of the, the, the climate change talks, um, and that included uh, famously Bolivia and uh, Venezuela, which I'll say a bit about in a minute. Um, and what we learned from WikiLeaks cables that were released, I think, in 2010 or 2011, um, was that the US had used a mixture of spying, threats, bullying, uh, promises of aid, um, promises, uh, threats of withholding aid to try and um, undercut the solidarity and support that had been generated by countries who were reluctant to sign up to the, to the accord. So they deliberately tried to manipulate countries into uh, signing up to this, this Copenhagen Accord. And it mostly worked um, with Bolivia remaining as a, one of the few kind of dissenting voices. Um, and Bolivia and Venezuela held in 2010 uh, what they called the World People's Conference on Climate Change and Mother Earth Rights. Um, and this was an unprecedented, uh, an unprecedented coming together of both um, kind of dissenting voices from the climate justice movement, um, as well as those governments which were trying to adopt a more progressive and more radical approach to climate change policy. Um, it was a, a, a mass conference attended by indigenous groups from across Latin America, um, as well as um, by the heads of states of, of, of Bolivia, Venezuela, and others. And they produced a, a much more progressive agreement or doc, uh, declaration than the one that emerged from Copenhagen a few months earlier. Um, ultimately, however, when it came to the formal United Nations climate change talks, proceeded next year in, in, in 2010 in, in Cancun, um, Bolivia was incredibly isolated because of the way in which uh, the US had managed to kind of uh, play divide and rule and, and sort of split off support for the dissent that existed around, uh, around um, the, the, climate, the agreement that was on the table. Um, so the final deal that was reached 12 months after the Copenhagen talks in Cancun um, was achieved with what the United Nations uh, Framework Convention called consensus, even though the Bolivian negotiators were kind of expressly um, shouting that they didn't agree and they didn't consent, um, they weren't part of this consensus. Um, the, the, the chair of the session just waved it through. We also know that the US um, and other um, kind of larger economies used kind of bribery um, <coughs> as a form of trying to manipulate countries' participation and, and signing up to 
the, the, the accord as, as written by those countries. Um, so they promised climate finance of up to $100 billion. I think it was uh, Hillary Clinton who was the Secretary for State when this, this figure was uh, promised. Um, but we'll see in just a moment that even these promises of funding were not quite what they seemed. They were highly conditional, um, and they've, they've sh they are shaping and have shaped uh, the forms of de development that is possible for Caribbean countries to, uh, to take, or the path pathways of development that is possible for Caribbean countries to take um, if, they, if they try and access this, this necessary funding. Um, one of the first things that's been raised by actors within the Caribbean is that the funding that's available, the funding that's been, been provided or offered, is highly conditional. So um, Caribbean countries have to jump through hoops to access the financing. Um, there are a number of conditionalities attached to the financing, um, and often these conditionalities will shift. Um, I spent time at the uh, Caribbean Community Climate Change Centre, which is based in Belize, and spoke to, uh, to staff who worked there who told me, so uh, I was there in 2010-11, and about that time was the time that kind of austerity was being rolled out here in the UK, and one of the big uh, projects that had been promised by the UK Development Agency seemed to hang in the balance during the period that I was there. So I spoke to a, a civil servant who told me that they didn't know if this funding, this money that they'd kind of planned to spend, that they'd uh, developed projects around and that they'd kind of, um, uh, that they were essentially relying on, um, was actually going to filter through because, um, and as we see with, with Trump, um, these, uh, these promises don't necessarily carry over when the political circumstances in the uh, donor country shift. In addition to the conditionality, um, there's also just a lack of, of actual funding being provided. So um, Dermat Maharaj, uh, the, the uh, Secretary General, sorry, Deputy uh, Secretary General of the, the Commonwealth, has pointed out that whilst $36 billion has been pledged, um, less than $20, $20 billion has actually been deposited, and of that, only $4 billion has been distributed to climate change projects. So this paints a picture, a picture of countries that are unable to access the even meager resources that are um, supposedly available. But even when the funding does get through, we have to question the kinds of activity that it's used to support and the, the forms of kind of uh, social, uh, social organization that it's used uh, to prop up. Climate finance is administered through the World Bank, um, and it as such, it strongly favours, unsurprisingly, given the kind of history of World Bank projects and activities, it, it favours market-based activity, um, such as the financial markets based around carbon trading. Um, so carbon trading is the idea that you can put a price on, on the capacity to pollute, um, and then you can sell permits to pollute to polluters, uh, uh, and, and in theory... Um, those polluters will be offsetting their pollution by buying permits to pollute from people who are already uh, more progressive or, or less polluting. Um, in practice, however, we know that these carbon markets are incredibly unstable and volatile. We know that about markets in general. Um, the price of carbon hasn't settled at a level that experts think would actually accurately represent 
um, its true sort of value. Um, and aside from that, a problem with carbon credits is that they don't actually reduce net pollution. Um, and they have all kinds of other perverse outcomes, such as the um, you can get carbon credits if you cut down virgin rainforest and plant monocrop uh, reservations or forests. Um, you can get carbon credits if you claim to uh, stop a development that you that was going to be incredibly polluting, and you say, "Oh, we're not actually going to to carry on carry through that development." Um, but what's often found to be the case is that these developments themselves are fictional or fabricated so as to achieve um, the carbon credits. So they don't actually achieve uh, the thing that they're supposed to, which would be the reduction of carbon. So again, uh, voices from within the region have suggested that it doesn't make sense to offer this money if uh, the polluters are going to continue to emit greenhouse gases, which is what they're doing. Um, there's a point at which the money can't help. And if you're going to end up with a, a climate that would have warmed by four degrees Celsius at the end of the, at the end of the century, there's no amount of money that you can give to a country like the Maldives, which is another country incredibly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, uh, to compensate for that. So, essentially, there's no if you're not cutting carbon, then there's no point in in offering to pay. Um, and returning to the question of of what that payment actually, what kind of activity that payment actually supports. It's worth looking at a couple of examples. Um, so this highly conditional funding um, is being distributed to some actors in the Caribbean, um, but unfortunately the kinds of action that it's supporting are those kinds of action which, is, which are easy to measure uh, the gains of, so um, projects that can be uh, assessed in terms of, in technocratic terms, in, in terms of uh, um, uh, economic growth, for example. Um, so the Resilient um, Buildings uh, Project, um, or, or someone, someone involved in a project um, in the region suggested that um, one of the things that, that can be done with climate change funding is to create uh, innovation and to um, kind of be able to try and look past the threat um, that's posed by climate change and to see it as a business opportunity. And this is kind of is consistent with the kinds of language that has always uh, emerged from the World Bank and, uh, and the, the IMF uh, when they were promoting particular forms of development in the region. Um, another project kind of speaks to the need to create an entrepre entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, but as with those forms of uh, um, as with the kind of uh, forms of, of entrepreneurial ecosystem that were allegedly likely to have been created by a structural adjustment, we have to be uh, fairly critical of, of, um, of the kinds of damage that, that this kind of narrative can cause and, and to the forms of society and, and model of social relations uh, that they reinforce. So one thing that's prominent in these activities um, and these funding regimes is the assumption that the existing social system will be maintained, existing forms of social relations will be, uh, will be continued, and they will be tweaked slightly to, perform, to provide gains for those people who are kind of innovative enough to, um, to, to pursue uh, 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 those investments. But these win-win-win 
narratives of climate change are extremely dangerous um, because they don't allow for a discussion of the extent to which existing models of development are themselves bankrupt, morally if not yet financially. Um, additionally, if we acknowledge, as Gosh invites us to, that climate change is shaped by the relations of empire, um, then we can also think about the fact that in some countries they have a considerable resources to respond to climate change. So in, in uh, the Netherlands, they've just committed uh, 16 billion euros uh, to a project to, to, to uh, try and shore up the country's uh, vulnerability to climate change. And we can acknowledge the fact that um, the resources that that the Netherlands has as a, a former imperial power are to some extent um, based on the expro expropriation of wealth and resources from uh, its former colonies. Instead then, I would argue um, that the resources provided to the region, the financial support necessary to deal with the effects of climate change to which we're already committed, um, should be unconditional. The conditions have already been met and those conditions were the systematic exploitation and degradation of the region and its environment. Um, so in terms of looking for an alternative framing, um, I think it's really important to draw attention to uh, the kind of uh, um, um, the lack of, of, of credibility that the sovereign debt that many of the islands, uh, the, the Caribbean nations, um, has I don't think it, it's a credible form of debt, and it needs to be it needs to be cancelled. Meanwhile, uh, climate debt needs to be acknowledged, um, and countries need to be uh, urged to pay the climate debt owed, rather than uh, offer funding as some kind of investment opportunity um, that's kind of done at the behest of, of benevolent in, uh, benevolent investors through forms of aid. Aid kind of implies voluntary responsibility on the part of the richer nations, and, and um, whereas the need is essential in the Caribbean, the responsibility is clear from the fact that industrialized countries have benefited from, to a large extent from the process of industrialization, um, which are those same processes that have contributed to climate change. So the burning of fossil fuels um, that helped to build um, the British economy um, and, and itself was based upon the expropriation of resources from uh, Britain's colonies um, is the same process, the same burning of fuels is, is what's caused climate change and, and contributed it to it in the first place. Um, so, we, uh, yeah, I'd argue for a, a framing that draws attention, explicit attention to that kind of historical uh, colonial and imperial relationship um, as have others, uh, such as Hilary Beckles, in relation to the, 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 the trade in enslaved peoples um, and, and his work along with the, the CARICOM government in trying to pursue uh, reparations. But things don't look particularly optimistic on that front. Um, we know that, for example, when, when he was Prime Minister and visited Jamaica, David Cameron was reluctant to, in fact he wasn't reluctant, he, he outright ruled out um, the, the prospect of paying for paying reparations for, for slavery and, and he urged Caribbean countries to move on. Um, meanwhile, as I kind of 
alluded to earlier, the UN, uh, sorry, the US have, have ruled out the possibility of, of any kind of climate change reparations, at the same time as acknowledging uh, their historic role in putting emissions into the atmosphere. So there's this kind of acknowledgement, but also an acknowledgement of their imperial power and, and the fact that they can just say no, or so they think. Um, so all of this points to the necessity of both a critique of imperialist forms of climate capitalism, um, as well as some kind of pressure from somewhere to push for a more progressive um, uh, set of targets and a more progressive agenda that's going to pursue more progressive social and political relations. And I'd argue that we can look to um, the climate justice movement as, as potentially um, uh, heralding some of those progressive demands. Um, there's no... Uh, there isn't a kind of universal definition of what climate ju justice means um, and one of the strengths of the climate justice movement potentially is the fact that it, has, uh, that it is diverse um, but arguably a fundamental principle is shared by, by all within that movement and that is that the threats of climate change um, are a consequence of unequal colonial um, economic and social power relations um, and therefore, every time we think about what kinds of solutions are proposed in response to climate change, we have to pay attention to those relations. We have to ask ourselves who's, be who's benefiting potentially and who's being harmed. How, does the, how do these responses affect the local population, um, territories and communities? Um, and what role is there for kind of an ethical or, or, or normative um, understanding of, of the climate crisis? Um, and I'll just briefly point to some examples of, of climate justice actors. So I think one of the things about climate justice is that it means different things in different contexts. So I've, I've largely been talking about the Caribbean so far, but we can see climate justice actions unfolding uh, globally. Um, it could be the protesting of a hydroelectric dam in Sikkim in North India. It could be uh, protesting against environmental racism by pushing for the shutting down of a coal-fired power station um, in, in Durban, South Africa. Or it could be actions such as that taken by, by uh, people who tried to shut down a power station, uh, a coal power station in Germany. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, these links between colonialism and climate change uh, were made more explicit by the Wretched of the Earth uh, block on, on, a, on a march that took place in London um, around the same time as the recent Par Paris climate change talks. Um, but this group were, were asked to go to the back of the march by the, the less uh, radical organisers of the protests. So there's a need to be sensitive to the fact that the climate justice message isn't going to be palatable for all uh, who work on climate change, probably quite the opposite, given the framing I've outlined. Nevertheless, um, there are some uh, potentially optimistic uh, victories that, that have been won. Uh, I, I say that with quite a degree of hesitation, given the latest developments that have taken place with the Dakota Access Pipeline. But last year, in, in kind of November, December, it looked like the kind of ongoing um, protests of indigenous peoples and others who were trying to halt the, the, um, the construction of, of a pipeline 
um, in, in Dakota had been successful, um, but immediately upon taking office, uh, Donald Trump has kind of attempted to push these, these, uh, these, the construction process forward again, um, leading, to his, leading to kind of ongoing battles between the police and, and protesters. Um, and I'll end on that note, um, because things don't look particularly good. Um, I said that, I, I mentioned earlier that I thought that even the existing climate change regime wasn't necessarily uh, uh, stable. Um, or I guess, yeah, the, the point that I'd like to make is just that the, even, even um, the kind of existing consensus as it was pushed through by the US um, in, 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 in Copenhagen and later in Paris um, is incredibly vulnerable. Uh, and subject to the to the whims of uh, the U.S. democratic system. So now we have a, a president in power who has openly denied climate change, who has pointed, appointed climate change deniers to his cabinet and to some of the most important roles uh, in, in uh, domestic government. So one of those roles is the head of the Environmental uh, Protection Agency, who has also gone on record as, as being a climate change denier. So... I guess we have to acknowledge that the, the fight is going to be long and hard, but um, there are some encouraging signs out there, and, and I, I don't think we have a choice in terms of uh, trying to properly understand and respond to climate change, but to acknowledge the, the kind of imperial and colonial character um, that structured it so far. Thanks. <laughs>